From the University of Toronto's Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy, this is the I'm Pharmacy Podcast. I'm Mina Tadros. Medications are an integral part of our healthcare system, helping millions of people around the world manage and overcome a wide range of health conditions. I would dare say that medications are essential to humans, but why are medications so important to humanity? The answer is simple. Without them, many of us would not be able to live full, healthy lives. From antibiotics that cure infections to painkillers that ease suffering, medications are essential for treating both acute and chronic illnesses. To that end, medications are a vital part of our healthcare system, and more importantly, an essential tool in managing illness and improving our health. And yet, their access is grossly limited around the world. According to the WHO, around 4.2 billion people lack access to basic medicines. Let me paint this picture. In low and middle income countries, half of the people do not have access to essential medicines. More importantly, it's estimated that millions of people die each year due to a lack of access to these medications. Access to medicines is a cited and major problem worldwide, but it impacts those most in need and often the poorest in the world. This combines with the lack of access to other healthcare services. This lack of access leads to unnecessary suffering, disability, death, and in many cases, these are easily preventable or treated situations. This is a complex problem though. Access to medicines can include a variety of different issues, sometimes dealing with high cost of drugs, inadequate healthcare infrastructure to even get drugs to places we need them, and limited research and development efforts for diseases that affect more low-income countries. While there's lots of initiatives and effects trying to increase this access, such things as the essential medicines list, we need to do more to ensure that everyone has access to these medications that need to lead better lives. Access to medicine is also an issue in Canada. Despite our reputation as having a universal healthcare system, we don't have universal pharmacare. This is compounded by the issues of affordability and accessibility, especially for those who are uninsured or underinsured. And this is actually a bigger problem than most people realize. How often does this actually happen? In 2021, one in five Canadians reported not having any prescription insurance or coverage for their medication costs. Combining this with the skyrocketing cost of medications in Canada, and we have a real issue. The high cost of medications also leads to concerns with medication non-adherence, so much so that the Canadian Pharmacists Association estimates that non-adherence because of cost can be costing our system $7.3 billion. This has led to increased hospitalizations, emergency department visits, and other healthcare costs that are associated with things that could have been easily treated or prevented. So what can be done? This is a real big problem. And that's what we want to explore this episode. How does this problem of access to medicines present globally and locally at home? And what are some actual solutions to helping solve this access problem? To begin our exploration into this problem, I first wanted to start at home here in Canada. To do so, we chatted with Dr. Danielle Martin, an expert and advocate in universal healthcare and specifically has spoken out around issues of pharmacare. Also, my former boss. My name is Danielle Martin. I'm a family doc and I am the chair of the Department of Family and Community Medicine here at the University of Toronto. So 
you know, the, the theme for this episode is around access to medicines. And I think you, you and I have had conversations pretty extensively in some cases about, you know, pharmacare and what that looks like in the Canadian landscape, but also just like what better access to medicines would look like. Like, do we actually have a problem in Canada? We have a huge and multi-layered problem in Canada with respect to access to medicines. And I think the easiest way to understand it and contextualize it is to know that Canada is the only developed country in the world with a universal health care system that doesn't include prescription drugs. And if you think about it, it's kind of crazy, right, that I as a family doctor could have a patient who comes to my office, and indeed this happens all the time, where we acknowledge the importance of and therefore cover for that person to come and see me, for me to examine them, to postulate a diagnosis, to send them for investigations, including advanced imaging, for specialty appointments if necessary, blood tests, and all of that is covered by our public plan. But the minute I write them a prescription to actually treat whatever ails yeah. them, they're on their own. And it's uh, it's absurd, actually, if you think of it, no rational person would ever design a healthcare system that way. And so the result of that is that we've ended up with a patchwork system of coverage in Canada where uh, there are some people who are covered through public plans in Ontario, people on social assistance and seniors over the age of 65. There are others who have private coverage through their, usually through their employer. And there are millions of people who have no coverage at all with the result that one in five households in Canada reports that someone in their household is not taking their medication because of cost. And we see it in family medicine all the time. We see people who take their drugs every other day. We see people who space out their puffers waiting for their check to come at the end of the month. Uh, some of these people are, uh, you know, of course, living in poverty or working low wage jobs, but some are highly paid contract or gig workers, but who are just mm. in between their, you know, one contract and the next or one paycheck and the next, and therefore not in a position to pay for their medications, people coming on and off their meds. We see kids who end up in the emergency department because um, their their family members, you know, couldn't uh, couldn't pay for their medication. Uh, we see people who can't afford their insulin for their type one diabetes. So it is a real problem. It affects real people. Um, and it comes from a deeply dysfunctional set of policy decisions that we've made as a country and it's got to get fixed. Yeah. Why do you think it was left out? So like, you know, one thing that's always been interesting to me is like in the very beginning of the design of, of healthcare in Canada, when we decided to go universal and um, the acts were passed federally and just, you know, agreements were made with the provinces, they didn't include drugs. Is that just because drugs weren't important back then? And now they've become more important or like maybe like a little context of how we got here. Yeah. So the apocryphal story on this is, you know, oh, in the 60s, when we um, patched together our public health care plans across the country, doctors and hospitals were where most health care happened. And, you know, it's true that there were not that many drugs yeah. in those days, if you think about it. Um as compared to the the wide array of drugs, useful and not useful, that we have today. Um, but also, the truth is that it was in the design from the outset. The Emmett Hall Commission that outlined the design of Canadian Medicare basically said, okay, well, we started with hospital insurance and then we moved to doctor insurance. And so next will be drugs. And we just arrested, yeah. you know, in that journey. And we've now spent more than 50 years battling to try to protect 
public universal coverage for doctors and hospitals and not having the necessary conversations about how to expand Medicare. And so some of some part of me thinks that perhaps, you know, we've been on the defensive so long trying to protect equitable access to the services we do cover, which is great, Mm -hmm. but that we've kind of forgotten what it feels like to be expansive or to take a chance or to do something bigger. So pharmacy reimbursement, like how pharmacists get paid is often in the back end of somehow through dispensing fees and overages. Like if you think about the community pharmacy, it makes money off of a drug, its overhead, markup, dispensing fees, et cetera. And then from there comes a pharmacist salary. That's like the classic model. And so when governments come to pay for something, it's way easier to cut a product than it is to cut people's wages. So when they go to you know, talk about physician reimbursements, nursing, whatever it may be, that's much more politically heavy to take on. And so I, do you think that part of it is that it's a product versus a service? Is that maybe, and, 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 and the second part is like, where's the kind of the, the fear of like evil big pharma taking money and, and like some of that side of all of this? Yeah. So let's break down the economics of this, because I do think that the, you know, the answer to difficult policy issues where nothing is moving often comes back to a conversation where one follows the money Mm -hmm. and it's not about good players and bad players. It's about uh, institutions and individuals responding to economic incentives. That's how markets work. So who benefits from the current setup that we've got right now? We have a setup where the, the pricing of our drugs in Canada is among the highest in the world by design. And in part, that's because we don't negotiate centrally the prices of our drugs. So Mm -hmm. the more fragmented your system is and the more different players, in this case, dozens of public and private plans, all negotiating secret deal prices with pharmaceutical companies, you know, that leads to an overall jacking up of the prices um, in the in the system. So we pay among the highest prices in the world for our Medications. So who benefits from that? The pharmaceutical industry benefits from that. That's clear. And I I think it's not in dispute. And then uh, as you've pointed out, there's another group who benefit from the the current setup. And those are pharmacists. And of course, particularly the really large pharmacy chains, Mm -hmm. but also even independent community pharmacists who understandably are trying to earn a living and, you know, uh, feed their families and pay their mortgages. But the way that the setup, um, the, the flows of money happen right now, it's not in anybody's interest, um, in those two groups to see a single universal plan with lower pricing to make drugs affordable and, uh, and central bargaining of those prices and transparency. And so, this is one of those places where the um, assumptions that people make about competition being good for transparency completely falls apart yeah. because actually we have a complete absence of any transparency in the way that drug pricing works and the way that the money flows through the system. And the problem with that is not just with, that we pay more than we should in quotes or need to, I would say, but the problem is that there are actual people who are suffering as a result of that. Like it's crazy. If you think about it, Mina, that a person who has to pay out of pocket for their medication pays a higher price than the person who has coverage through a public or private plan, because that insurer has gone out and negotiated the prices of that same pill down to a lower cost that you and I can't see or don't know about as you know, people working in the system. And so Actually, the person who pays the highest price in the whole system 
is the individual who is the person who can afford it the least. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it is interesting because like, I think even in the private insurance sector, although they are starting to shift, they've, they've been notorious for just listing things. And now that they're starting to negotiate prices themselves, they've been told, well, you were subsidizing the public programs. And so it's almost like the people paying out of pocket have to subsidize everybody else. And that doesn't feel fair because many times, you know, I in the pharmacy have seen the exact same thing you noted. Like, you know, one story sticks in my head, which was a student. She was in university, uh, diagnosed and living with ADHD and her stimulants. Stimulants are expensive drugs because they're branded. And she would just basically only fill them around an exam time. And she was struggling through school. And I I, I kind of was torn. Like we tried to find her cards. We tried to get her into the Trillium program. Like I could tell when exams were because she'd come in to fill her prescription because that felt like it was worth it. But then her learning throughout the time was kind of hindered. And um, yeah, I mean, I have a family in my practice right now who I am uh, working with. And we have I mean, I'm extremely lucky. I work in an interprofessional team. We have an amazing pharmacist on our team who tries to help our patients navigate these labyrinthine systems. But, you know, this is a family where the he drives a taxi, the new Canadian, his wife's at home with their kids. She was diagnosed with a very serious illness that involved surgery and seizures and all kinds of stuff. She's taking some very expensive yeah. anti-epileptic medications. He's self-employed, right? He drives a cab. So um, and he himself has diabetes and a bunch of other um health problems associated with men of his age and stage and uh, the part of the world that he comes from and the sedentary job that he works. And so um, they've just made a calculation. So they buy her drugs and not his because they don't want her to have a seizure. Yeah. And the complications of his diabetes, which as you and I both know, will include kidney failure, dialysis, blindness, amputation, heart attack, stroke, death, those are the complications of untreated diabetes. You know, they're going to take their chances on those because those are long-term complications out far into the future that they can't see and they don't want her to have a seizure tomorrow. So families are making choices like that all over the country. And you're right, it's not fair that those folks are paying the, you know, the price of this um, system that we find ourselves in. You know, in your story, what also kind of drives me a little bit crazy is that when that individual later on has complications for diabetes, we're going to jump in and have to pay for it. It's, it's like completely even if crazy. economically, it's, as they always say, you know, it's penny wise and pound foolish. Yeah. Right. So, you know, save a little money now and then pay and then pay for the, the consequences of that short sighted decision later when the person lands in the emergency department with their right. horrible outcome, not to yeah. mention the human cost of that. Like, it's just, it's very disheartening because we know this, We've known it for a long time that we do have an access to medicines problem in Canada. We have an equity problem and we have a price and cost problem. And there's one thing that would fix all of that. And that's universal public pharmacare. And we have a stack of reports from experts across many generations and every political stripe of government Mm -hmm. that say, this is how you do it. Um, And it seems to me that there's almost no movement at all. To further explore this problem outside of Canada's borders and zoom out internationally, we spoke with Professor Gillian Kohler. Dr. Kohler is a professor at the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy and the director of the WHO Collaborating Centre for Governance, Transparency and Accountability in the Pharmaceutical Sector here at the University of Toronto. 
I feel almost silly asking this question, but there are no silly questions. Go ahead. <laughs> I <Mostly>. appreciate that. <laughs> Do we have a global access to medicine problem? We've always had a global access to medicines problem. So that's not a silly question. It's a very important one. And what pro what is a problem is that in the many decades that I've been working on this issue, we're bantering around the same story over and over again yeah. in terms of access to medicines and how, you know, there's disparities between low income and high income countries. I think we don't have enough data. We need to get more of that data. But we also have embedded problems, what I would call a global wicked problem. And to me, what it means is that although things in some areas are certainly better, they're not good enough. And we're faced with what I would say are probably systemic issues that often um, are the problems behind these lingering, thorny, intractable access to medicine issues globally. So I want to dive into it a little bit because I get... You know, one thing is we know that the, the WHO came out with this essential medicines list, right? So they created a list and they're like, these drugs should be everywhere. I think I'm paraphrasing that. But is that where the problem is? Is this essential medicine list? Is that where we should be starting thinking about? Or is the problem broader than that, right? Because the essential medicine list is just some medicines. Yeah, I mean, it's I think I mean, the essential medicine list was really designed to help countries determine what were the medicines they needed for their population. Mm -hmm. It's not a ceiling, it's a floor. And it doesn't mean that every country needs every single medicine on it. It's also a guideline. It, it really isn't any more than that. Yeah. Um, it can serve a purpose. I don't think if we look globally that a lot of countries are abiding by it religiously. I think it's very helpful in some cases. And it's a very good thing to have, but it's certainly not the solution to access. To me, the solution to access is about many different issues. One of them is obviously in terms of who are we relying on for the production of medicines mm -hmm. and what kind of leverage do they have in terms of helping to make the world a better place and thinking about better access to yeah. other populations. And I'm obviously talking about the pharmaceutical industry here. Yeah. So I want to like, I want to dive into that a little bit because so when I think about drugs, there's sort of access in terms of how quickly you get novel and new treatments. And then there's access to just basic need drugs that are no longer patented that any generic company can produce. And are those two stories different or are they affected by the same issues? So the novel versus the old. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, these are very complicated issues. So I'd say yes and no, but yeah. <laughs> in terms of an answer to that question. So let me try and unpack it. What we're seeing more and more right now are tailored and targeted therapies for particular disease conditions. And the price tags attached to some of these, which you probably know better than I, are astronomical. Mm -hmm. And the question is, why should people have to die because they can't afford access to a therapy? And we could go back over and over again about the issue of research and development is costly. And yes, we know it's costly, but I don't believe the numbers that are out there from the industry. I think there are, I mean, a lot of people have written about this, so I'm obviously not the only one saying this. They're very um, opaque. They don't calculate it in a way that's open and transparent. And the question is, access to medicine is part of um, the right to health. So the fact that there are medicines that 
might help save people's lives or improve instrumentally the quality of their lives that are available somewhere but are out of reach because of a price tag to me is unconscionable. That That is in itself an issue. Then there's the story about access to, as you said, generic medicines. And I should say now the WHO essential medicines list doesn't have just generic drugs on it. There are patented medicines on it as well, as you likely know. So the question to just getting access to generic drugs can be a little bit I, I hesitate to how I'm going to frame this. Not that it's necessarily easier, but when you don't have a patent on a medicine, ideally you would have price competition because there'll be multiple producers making the same medicine. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes, you know, we have a weird scenario where there actually are molecules that aren't under patent, but actually nobody's interested yeah. in producing it because it simply isn't going to generate enough profit. Yeah. So, you know, I, I know that you asked questions about this, um, but I felt like, the pandemic was a live sped up version of watching access to medicine go wrong. And it kind of like shed light on all of this. So maybe you can walk us through as a case example, like how, and the questions you were asking about the pandemic as things rolled out and new treatments and vaccines and things came out. Right. So really important point. And I think For me personally, all the issues that I've been working on over the past two decades, as you said, were illuminated during the pandemic because the access issues came out. And what was interesting this time is that people like us who live in high income countries who are privileged and maybe most of the time don't necessarily have to think about access. For the first time in our lives, we were faced with access issues in the beginning of the pandemic when we when we didn't have access to COVID-19 vaccines. Um, it was humbling for me, at least personally, and it made me realize I talked a lot in my um, past prior to that about access without really getting it. And I still don't get it, obviously, like some individuals in some parts of the world. But it did actually teach me a lot about what it means to really want to have access to something that you simply can't get. So what the COVID-19 vaccine access, I guess, story taught us was that we are in a situation mostly where we are, in terms of we, as in, you know, we advocating for public health, are beholden to the industry that manufactures these products most of the time, not all the time. Let's remember that industry doesn't do this by themselves. They work with public institutions. They work with researchers, academics. But at the end of the day, at least in the COVID-19 um, scenario, we were we were faced with a situation where we were reliant on industry and thankfully industry did do development well. So that's, you know, again, kudos for that. But at the end of the day, there wasn't an effort to make sure that everybody who needed vaccines could get them. Sure. There's a creation of a global mechanism, COVAX, which was supposed to ensure that everyone globally, at least the high, highly vulnerable and health professionals populations got access quickly to vaccines. Um, that, worked not as well as many anticipated. But at the end of the day, why are we protecting patents when we have a public health emergency? So why are we beholden to the industry in terms of their profit motivation when people are dying from health conditions that can be prevented? What what you see is, uh, is some companies come out and they do good. They talk about, we're going to have tiered pricing. We're going to ensure access to different countries based on their economic capabilities what they say is that the richer countries are basically funding poorer countries, and it seems to not really be solving the problem. Is the answer here like some sort of global entity 
or is that impossible? Like, is that hurting cats? On one side, you're going to depend on the, the market to figure itself out. That's not working. The other side is like, okay, let's get our ducks in a row. But that sounds like impossible. Like where, how do we, how do we start thinking through this? Like, how do we start trying to tackle this? Yeah. I mean, again, small steps forward, right? We, we have to, I think in terms of creating another entity, it depends on what it is. I mean, we saw the failure of global cooperation during the pandemic, Absolutely. right? The, the WHO um, was not a global leader in the sense that it needed to be. Other forums just didn't, as you pointed out, just didn't seem to work. There was definitely, and there seems to be a trend towards less global cooperation and more about what's in it for us, yeah. what's in it for our nation, um, which is actually quite frightening when you, when, when you think about it. Would more, would more kind of international law regulations make a difference? I don't know. Is that enough? I think we need to be innovative. And I think we just, I think we need to shift. I would say that there has to be a role for governments to take this initiative more forcefully against the pharmaceutical industry. And whether that's by way of incentives, whether that's the way of kind of more forceful penalties, whether that's the way of modifying a very, very old patent system that really isn't designed for, you know, our public health needs today or ever, to be quite frank with you. Um, I think I think it's it's not a it's not going to be a kind of one solution is going to fix this. Yeah. But I think we need a wake up call here. And again, that wake up call means that the current way of doing business, even with some of the shifts that have been happening over the past 20 to 30 years in terms of innovation, um, it's still not working if we have the same old statistics and bantering of the fact that, you know, we have this problem of global access to medicines that's skewed. And I would say one thing, though, when we talk about it, I want to be careful that we don't talk about just all populations. When we say people in low income countries, there are some very wealthy people who live in low income countries. So we're talking about the poorest and the most marginalized and vulnerable populations. And that could happen in a low income country a lot. And that can also happen in a high or middle income country as yeah. well. The problem on an international level was complex with not one solution offering the silver bullet. But what would this look like at home? Here's Danielle again. I think that which model we pursue depends at least in part on what problem we think we're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. So there's no doubt that if if we want to improve, if our only goal is to improve access to medicines, which is a pretty important goal, right? there are a lot of roads one could take to get to that outcome, including, you know, the so-called public option, fill in the gaps approach, including true national pharmacare, including, um, you know, expansion of existing provincial plans over time by population, by age. Like there are a million ways you could do right. it. Um, if we also want to do something about our costs, then it is almost impossible to do that with the fill in the gaps approach. Right. So if, if we believe that we should be trying to hit uh, two targets uh, with one stone mm -hmm. and use pharmacare as the policy solution to both improving access to medicines and lowering costs through central price negotiations, purchasing, um, you know, uh, generic substitution, universal formulary, like all of these other tools, then you kind of have to do 
the real pharmacare. Right. Um, you know, the version that basically brings prescription medicines under Medicare, under our existing public drug plans, but with a, a federal federal purchaser or a federal, um, you know, agency of some kind, um, or the, or you just upload the whole thing from the provinces to the federal government and basically say, you know, we, in this country, we have, uh, hospital and doctor care is dealt with mostly at the provincial level with, you know, federal funding and Mm -hmm. conditions and, uh, prescription drugs are dealt with nationally, you know, in a single agency. Which some countries country. do, right? Like all that's the time. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that happens all the time, all over the world. Right. If you think about it, actually, when you're negotiating drug prices and the person on the other side of the bargaining table is a massive multinational corporation that has offices in like, I don't know, 32 countries around the world, it hardly even makes sense to have a national government on the other side. Right you probably should have a multinational uh, bargaining agency that spans borders. Right. Because if, if the group on the other side of the conversation is Pfizer, you know, it's not even a fair fight. (laughs) Well, a divided, a divided market with, with no transparency plays to their advantage because they have full transparency into all the prices. Right. It's not a fair bargaining table. It's not, it's not a fair bargain. And it certainly isn't if you're PEI. So, you know, so we could begin at least by bargaining those things nationally. So, so what are the options? You could leave all of the uh, private plans in place, uh, thereby neutralizing the uh, political opposition, both of private insurance um, to some extent of the pharmacies and of, you know, perhaps that group we discussed in the middle class who like their plan and don't want to change it and then um, grow the public plans to, to fill the gaps and you could get to universal access. Of course, you and I know that what happens then is the people who get sick drop out of the workforce and go into the public plan. And so all of the quote unquote bad risk yeah. ends up in the public plans and all of the basically healthy working people are in the private plans and it becomes hugely expensive for right. the public plans because the public plans are backstopping all the risk for the private plans, anything that's expensive, anything that's complicated, uh, anyone who gets so sick that they can't work immediately transfers into the public plan. So that's going to be an expensive model, but it's perhaps less politically tricky. Mm-hmm. And maybe we decide that we'll we'll take that option as a right. country. The other possibility is that you say, no, we're actually going to have true public universal pharmacare and you start with either a population So Ontario experimented with this around kids, Mm -hmm. you know, we're just going to cover everybody under 18 for this list of hundred or 150 or I, you know, at one point I called it 20 drugs to save a nation. Yeah. Just start with a list. I don't care how, (laughs) how small the list is and start with a population and just say, we're going to practice with those. And then the public formulary grows over time um, and starts to look something like the WHO essential medicines list. Right. And, um, and then if you've got private coverage, your private coverage can cover the other things, you know, the, the drugs that are not on the plan, the second or third line things, the more expensive ones, the brand name ones, uh, the, the ones we used to call lifestyle drugs, et cetera. And so those, those, that's also an option. Um, it would be, it would require a lot more political will, Mm -hmm. Um, And it also requires governments to step in and start paying for things that private insurance has been paying for up until now. 
And if you're a government, that sounds expensive. And so it's a tricky one. The reason why we haven't done it is because it's tricky. If it were easy, it would have gotten done by now. Whether it was globally or right here at home, this problem of access to medicines has many different layers. It wasn't just about paying for the medications, but also ensuring that everybody has equitable access to all the medications that they need. More importantly, it seemed like there was an issue here of leadership, an issue of which organizations take the lead, whose problem is this, and how do you bring every stakeholder together? You have private entities, public entities, and lots of different incentives driving forward this problem. We heard a lot about solutions. No one silver bullet internationally was going to solve this. And at home, it seemed that we lacked the political will to take the steps forward for anything related to pharmacare. I don't think that we can push this problem any further. As we start to get more exciting treatments, access is going to be imperative. And if we don't do this, how many millions of people globally will we leave behind? It has become apparent that the time is now to act on this based on the lessons from COVID, lessons from the past decades, and ensuring that patients get the medications that they need. We just need that political will. This episode of the I'm Pharmacy podcast was produced by Steve Southon, Kate Richards, and me, Mina Tadros. Musical accompaniment was from Steve Southon and Diego Martinez. This episode was edited by Steve Southon. Special thanks to Dr. Danielle Martin and Professor Jillian Kohler. We'll be dropping new episodes every single month, so make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and keep asking questions. Catch you at the next episode.